Welcome to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. This week, I'm talking with IETP's Director of Climate Change and Rural Strategies, Ben Lilliston, about a report that came out this week called Missing the Mark at uh, Farm Bill Reforms for Higher Value Markets. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So the contention of this report is that the basically the consumer market, the free market, if you will, for, for food um, is going kind of in an opposite direction from the farm bill, that the demand for organic, for local food, non-GMO, et cetera, is, is growing rapidly, but at the same time, the farm bill is going in the exact opposite direction. So let's start talking about what does the farm bill incentivize right now? Yeah, it, it really creates uh, incentives for farmers to grow commodity crops. So those are things like corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, cotton, um, that are used and bought up by agribusiness companies to turn into, to, to export, to turn into animal feed, and possibly to biofuels or ethanol. Um, but these are, these are crops that exist in a global marketplace. And farm bill programs really take away some of the risk for farmers who would want to grow those kind of crops. Um, so we've talked a bit about on the podcast about things like the 1996 Farm Bill getting rid of supply management and um, some of the other ways that agricultural policy is uh, promoting exports and intensive agriculture. But, you know, it seems like the Farm Bill is also set up to promote a food system that was kind of in the past, um, sort of this industrial model of thinking. Um, can you talk a bit about how it originally got that way? Yeah, I mean, it, it does trace a lot of our, our history. We used to, of course, have a lot more farmers on the land. Um, and food security was actually a concern, domestic food security, that we wouldn't be able to produce enough food. So farm programs were put in place to make sure farmers could uh, actually make a living from what they're producing and producing crops that are storable and usable in a number of different contexts. So that's why you have these kind of grains and commodity crops that are part of these farm programs. And then over time, you know, our production has just gotten so much, you know, just improved over time with a lot of the mechanization and technology and so forth um, to where we've produced uh, much, much more than we need. And that's, that's going back quite a far, uh, quite a ways we've been doing that. And so, um, this system uh, has been continued really to benefit global agribusiness companies that uh, take the excess of what we produce and export it um, and uh, establish markets around the world. It's also been clear that this kind of system hasn't really benefited farmers and because it's continually, it's basically a low price system where you try to get the price down as low as possible to compete in global markets, that doesn't work for farmers because that low price is often below their cost of production. And so we've seen this steady uh, decline over the last several decades and more of farmers in the United States. And that's why we're losing family farmers and uh, why right now uh, we're in the middle of sort of a mini farm crisis and you know, five straight years of low prices, declining income, rising debt. Um, and it's really hitting the remaining farmers out there 
uh, hard and this you know it's almost as if the the system is actually designed to do this farmers are viewed as expendable in this system um, it really incentivizes getting big so medium-sized farmers struggle um, when prices go down they're unable to really withstand multiple years of low prices and low income and so they get bought out by bigger farms so you're seeing land consolidated farm consol farmers consolidated ownership um, now becoming more and more um, outside ownership whether it's from outside investors uh, people from the city who still have land uh, in their just own land but are renting it out to um, you know farm operators and this is the system that is in place and it's a system intentionally in place that works very well for as I mentioned global agribusiness doesn't work well for farmers to actually make money from the market yeah, and, and this is why we have a farm bill as you pointed out since 1996 that really focuses in on softening the blow from the marketplace. In other ways, the assumption is farmers are going to lose money. Mm -hmm. And that's what they often don't talk about in the farm bill, which is out front, hey, you guys are going to lose money. We're going to have to put in programs to help you deal with those losses, subsidies, and now the emergence of insurance oriented uh, programs really sort of take the risk out of it for farmers. And they have a lot of investments in this. And this is what the bankers want as well as what they're going to give loans for. Um, and then we also have loan programs that are, that are federally guaranteed to support the system. So farmers, you're gonna lose money, but the government's gonna help you out and soften that blow. And you know, it's, it's a system that is, is uh, very entrenched, very hard to change. And if you're a farmer, there's a lot of reasons why you would do this. You know, I mean, farming is risky and you have this sort of safety net in place that you're you know if you're hanging by a thread and if you're dealing with uh, losses or mar very low margins this is kind of the the way you might go um unfortunately um you know it's really taking a toll and it's taking a toll on the number of farmers we have out there and farmers um uh, in financial stress is increasing you're seeing the number of suicide hotlines springing up in farm states. You know, dairy farmers right now are getting some of those hotlines in their checks in the mail uh, because the price of, of uh, milk is so low. Um, so it's a system that really views farmers as expendable. You're gonna lose money and that's okay. Some of you guys are gonna go out of business. Some of your families are gonna lose everything and we don't mind because it works well for the larger agribusiness. At the same time, um, you know, that we're really incentivizing oversupply in this low price system, um, the demand for some of these commodity products is actually kind of stagnating. Um, and one of the reasons that it's stagnating is that people are demanding uh, a healthier food system, you know, in a lot of ways, um, whether it's more fruits and vegetables or non-commodity crops, um, more transparency in the system, but also um, food that's being, you know, even commodity crops that are being produced without chemicals um, and being produced in ethical ways. Um, so talk a bit about how that um, demand grew and, and what's behind that. Well, I, you know, there's just been over the last 20 to 25 years, 
growing uh, consumer awareness, as well as awareness in the public health community, as well as awareness in the environmental community, that this uh, industrial system of production is causing a number of environmental problems, whether it's uh, polluting the water, um, health problems, whether it's linked to pesticides or um, less nutritional quality or um, the overuse of antibiotics in animal production. Um, and uh, also people wanting to connect more with farmers in their area. So just local connections. This has been emerging over the last 25 years, I think, as people have kind of started to come to grips with this industrial system and some of the downsides of it. So you, what you have is a farm bill, as you said, sort of operating um, as if none of this consumer demand exists. They're, they're just going down the same system uh, because as very powerful lobbying forces benefiting from that system um, and ignoring that consumers uh, sending very clear market signals that they want more organic, um, uh, they want more locally produced food, they want more grass-fed beef, uh, they want um, non-GMO, they're, they're not as interested in GMO, and it's not just consumers, um, but it's food companies as well. They're following consumer trends, but they're also listening from their uh, to their shareholders that are saying, um, you know, we want these things, we're also concerned about water, we're also concerned about greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. So many of the food companies out there are very vocal about addressing climate change. Now, whether they're really dealing with them or not is another question. And whether these are marketing, sort of green marketing um, tools rather than real investments is another question. But all the signals from the marketplace are, we should be producing more of this. And, and it's important to point out the demand is much higher than the supply in so, all these areas. So let, let's, let's talk about that. Um, let's use organic just as an example. So there's greater organic, uh, demand for organic food than there is supply. What makes it hard for a farmer to actually meet that demand? Yeah, a, a great example. So it takes uh, three years for a farmer to transition to organic. And so during those, that time, um, they are not getting the premium price that organic provides. And so that, that's one element that makes it hard. Uh, some of it is just making this transition in your production system um, requires a risk. Um, it requires some knowledge changes. Maybe it depends on what you're, you're transitioning to, but could be producing crops that you haven't done before. It could be doing things in a very different way. And then you look at the um, financial uh, loans that farmers really do rely on. Bankers are, are less likely to give you that loan to make that, uh, manage that time and that system. Um, the Farm Bill also has um, sort of different types of insurance programs. Insurance programs do not uh, assist organic farmers as well as they do conventional farmers. The, and, and insurance is important for farmers because of all the risk that's involved, right? Weather risk, pest risk, um, you know, these are real risks that farmers are managing on a regular basis. So there's a lot of challenges to to converting to organic, it, it's a risk, you know, for, and particularly if, if you're a farmer who's underwater or struggling to keep going, 
you know, and there are many stories of farmers converting to organic out of sheer desperation. Like we have nothing else. We don't know what to do. This is our last shot. Um, the last thing I'd point out is um, imports. And um, there has been some well-documented uh, instances of fraudulent organic grains coming, uh, grains coming in from other countries. So in other words, claiming to be organic, but not and undermining the organic market. So um, there is no kind of concerted effort in the farm bill to really grow our organic market, to say, okay, farmers are getting a price premium. Let's get more farmers involved here. Let's deal with the underpriced uh, imports. Let's help them navigate uh, the transition time. There are programs that, that will help farmers do that, but they're routinely underfunded. Um, and how do we build this market up in a way that that can work for farmers? So yeah, I want to talk more about the farm bill in a sec. But you had alluded to the the big food companies um, are are putting pressure on producers to adopt some of these sustainability principles. Can you just expand a little bit more on, on the difference between their rhetoric and what we're seeing as far as actual benefits to farmers. You know, companies like General Mills, um, Smithfield. Uh, even Walmart who's turning themselves into a, a larger and larger buyer, direct buyer of agricultural products. Um, they are placing a number of different demands on farmers, whether it has to do with water quality, reducing fertilizer use, um, uh, in some cases um, could be pesticide use and others, trying new crops. Um, and so on the one hand, you don't want to criticize them for um, pushing towards sustainability. Um, but it's also clear that what they're not doing is providing farmers and growers enough of a premium price where it makes sense for them to make that transition. There are a lot of farmers that are participating in that and trying to make that work. And, you know, in some cases, those transitions can, can result in lower um, production costs. So it can make sense. Um, but it's, it's a, it, this is why you're not seeing a massive conversion of farmers to these kind of different sustainable practices is that the market is not quite ready to pay enough of a premium to make it happen. And this is why I, the paper we, we point to the farm bill as a perfect um, system of programs that would uh, provide public support in a whole different, you know, variety of ways to farmers to help them meet this market, make this transition so they can meet the market for what the um, food companies are sort of wanting and wanting to sell. I think um, we shouldn't totally let the food companies though off the hook here, as well as consumers, you know, a lot environmental sustainability uh, should cost more. And, and in many ways, food should cost a little bit more than it does when you think about the environmental benefits that, that farmers could provide. And we have to figure out a way to both um, reflect that in the price as well as make it accessible to everyone and make sure that people can um, access those kind of organic foods or other types of value-added foods. We talked a little bit about some of the incentives for organic and I, I think they're you know, in the paper, you talk about the different incentives for each of the programs. Um, what are what are a couple of immediate things that could be done in the farm bill, um, like big picture things, uh, or you know, sort of systemic shifts in the farm bill that would that would 
um, uh, make this transition better? Well, it, the good news is there are a lot of really good programs in the Farm Bill. The bad news is that they're really underfunded. And there's sort of a side part of the Farm Bill. And, um, you know, one of the, the, the most popular conservation program is the Conservation Stewardship Program. Year after year, more farmers apply to get, um, uh, to enter into that program than there are funds available. So it's way underfunded. And this is a program that supports things like um, soil health, um, water quality, like uh, water quality in, ag in agriculture. These are working farmers programs, so, so practices on the farm. And that's distinct from other conservation programs like the Conservation Reserve Program, which takes farm land out of production. That's also a good program. But um, in terms of transitioning, um, the Conservation Stewardship Program has a lot of really good incentives that could really uh, aid in this transition. It's just woefully underfunded and, and should be uh, every farmer that wants access to that program really should have access. The deep concern here is that the House Farm Bill that just was um, voted down by the House but is going to come back in a few weeks eliminated the Conservation Stewardship Program. I mean, a real surprise to a lot of people. Here you have the single most con popular conservation program uh, eliminated by the House uh, Agriculture Chair, Michael Conway. Um, but so, the, so a major investment in Conservation uh, Stewardship Program is one uh, change that the Farm Bill could make. Um, also, um, a shift in how the insurance programs work. Um, one of the, as I mentioned before, the insurance programs work very well for commodity farmers. Um, uh, they don't work so well for organic. They don't work so well for smaller scale farmers like local, you know, those targeting local food markets for uh, uh, grass-fed beef operations. You know, so for, for these markets that are growing, they're still not there where they reflect the value of the product, you know, and they, uh, and that's the key in insurance, right? You want to get coverage that really reflects the value, whether it's your home or your car. And if you're not getting enough coverage to reflect that, it doesn't work for you. And, and um, so improving those programs, but also you could go a step further, which is to actually create incentives in those programs for more, um, conservation practices of all farmers. So, you know, commodity farmers who are protecting the water, who are, um, you know, expanding soil health or reducing um, other sorts of nutrient runoff, they could, should get incentives through insurance to do that, just as, you know, in a home you get incentives if you reduce your fire risk. So we've been talking about that for the last several farm bills, but it's, it's absolutely true. And um, if and so the, those are kind of some big changes. The other big uh, part of the farm bill that we need investment on is infrastructure and infrastructure for these new markets. It's it's a real deterrent for farmers trying to figure out, particularly in the meat, um, locally grown meat, organic meat. Where do we find processing operations? But across the board, finding figuring out we've really dismantled in this country, our local foods infrastructure, and built these large mega processing plants 
and everything's really set up in a very concentrated way. And now you have consumers who want these products and you have farmers who want to grow it, but the infrastructure is not there. So how would we, how would we incentivize creating that infrastructure? Yeah. So again, we got, we got some good programs in the farm bill. We got um, rural development programs that support cooperatives and small businesses in rural areas that could um, help finance building some of this infrastructure. We also have value added uh, producer grants, which really help target um, farmers and others who want to build their own infrastructure in the community. Um, again, major sort of infrastructure focused investments in the Farm Bell through the rural development title um, could make a huge difference in, in, in making these markets accessible for farmers. And just to expand on that just a little bit more, we've seen actually kind of a disinvestment in rural development in this current administration and in USDA independent of the Farm Bill. So could you just explain a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, really troubling. I mean, you, you, you have the uh, Secretary of Agriculture uh, moving to eliminate the undersecretary uh, position within USDA uh, of rural development. So that's basically lowering the stature of rural development within the US Department of Agriculture. You have the Trump proposed budget. So the budgets he submits to Congress really eliminating a number of these programs that I just talked about or massively cutting them. Um, so there's no investment there coming from the administration. It really has to come from Congress. And again, troubling to look at that House Farm Bill and see a disinvestment in several of these programs, whether it's starting rural co-ops or small businesses or producing uh, local foods infrastructure. So going the opposite direction, we would say, of where we need to go. Right. And then the, the last thing that you talk about in the paper is um, a section called Marketplace Integrity, where you're talking about uh, both uh, trade policy in general, but then protecting against um, some of the imports that are coming in that are undermining local markets. Yeah, it's, it's important to understand how the Farm Bill works with trade agreements. And so those two things, you know, the 96 Farm Bill came right at the same time NAFTA was put in place, right at the same time the U.S., entered into the World Trade Organization. So those trade agreements have helped facilitate the export, really export dependent system that we're in right now. And it's a very vulnerable system. It's a system where farmers are really at the mercy of uh, global agribusiness companies and market global markets that they have no control over. And well, now, and the whims of the Trump administration. And that, exactly. And now we're seeing that Trump you know, administration really disrupting those markets. They have, they have no power in the system at all to set fair prices for what they're producing. And so they, they're, they're price takers um, in economic terms. And so um, we're going to have to look at trade policy too, if we really want to grow these kind of emerging markets, you know, and part of looking at that trade policy has to be not allowing fraudulent imports in and not allowing dumping uh, from other countries uh, coming in and really setting a, a, a value on developing domestic agriculture and food markets. And I think part of that also has to be recognizing the right of other countries to also build these markets. Um, you know, the U.S. has been very aggressive in, in pushing for other countries to open up their markets for our exports. And uh, the damage has been enormous in some of those countries where they've lost 
Mexico is kind of the case study um, where NAFTA helped you know push two million corn farmers off the off the land in Mexico. But we need to also recognize the rights of other countries to produce their own domestic food system in a way that fits them. And then the last question I want I want to touch on and maybe close on is that you know the the, the it's unlikely very unlikely, extremely unlikely that Farm Bill this year will include, you know, the programs that you're talking about in the paper, right? Um, but at the same time, state and local governments can also be taking action to be supporting local food systems. So if I'm, if I want to get active at the state or local level, what are some, what are some good things to be advocating for? Well, I think that this, as we talked about infrastructure a lot, um, this is something that states could be investing in right now. I mean, they don't have to wait for the Farm Bill. Farm Bill certainly can help provide resources in that way, but states could also be deeply investing in local foods infrastructure, whether it's uh, um, uh, community level processing plants, um, food hubs, um, uh, cooperative businesses that farmers want to get started. Um, and then the other element that they can take a lead on is around purchasing. Um, procurement, whether it's at the school level, college, public college level, institutional level, but really expanding public procurement that uh, in these markets that is focused not just on the consumer side, but also on the farmer side and ensuring that they get uh, a premium price for what they're providing. All right. Well, Ben, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks very much. For more information on what you've heard and to read Ben's paper, Missing the Market, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. I want to thank Andrew Arisso for editing the podcast and remind you that you can download Uprooted on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you've heard, please give us a positive rating. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.